Hey everyone, this is Anthony Parrott. I wanted to apologize. We had some technical issues, and so the recording is not as high quality as I usually like it to be. So I did the best we could, but here it is. All right, so one, let me give sort of an outline of what we're trying to do today. I want to answer Antonio's hanging question about why is eternal hell the majority view now if it didn't used to be. We'll tackle just a couple troubling texts. In second. Thessalonians 1 is one, is one, and then sort of like Revelation in general is another one. I'll try to give some clarity about like what, if if you take Christ-centered universalism seriously, what then is our future? And then I'll try to offer a few theological arguments and conclusions for us today. And then, God willing, that we'll have some time for Q&A. We'll see how we do. So to begin with, Antonio's asked the question, why is eternal hell, infernalism, hellism, eternal conscious torment, as it says on lots of Southern Baptist websites, why is that the majority view today, if it didn't used to be? What changed? So a little bit of refresher from my sermon was, it's generally understood that there were six theological schools in the first four to five centuries of early Christianity. So once Christianity sort of left the nest of Jerusalem and began to spread, uh, spread throughout the Roman world, and thanks to the relative safety that the Roman Empire offered you on highways and the sea, Christian missionaries could travel as far northwest as England, Spain, Northern Africa, missionaries carried it down into modern day Ethiopia. There's a whole other story that we can tell and explore about how Christianity spread into India and Western China. And you've got these six or theological school catechesis is the process of teaching someone. And those schools were Alexandria, Antioch, Caesarea, and Edessa. And those four taught universal reconciliation. Then you had Ephesus, and Ephesus taught something called annihilationalism, which we haven't talked about a lot because it's kind of outside our purview. But annihilationalism is basically the idea that human souls or human persons on their own are not immortal. They must have God keeping them perpetually alive if they are to exist. And if someone is to perpetually reject the gospel or Jesus, even after death, then God does not take action against that person by giving them punishment, suffering, and hell, but rather simply removes his presence or protection from that person. And so they they can no longer exist. They cease to exist. They are annihilated. So Ephesus was taught that. And then Rome, and then there's sort of a seventh, which would be Carthage and Hippo. So Northern Africa taught eternal conscious torment. And Rome, you know, has its issues as a as a place because it was the seat, it was the capital of the empire. And it, you know, was deeply influenced by its imperial instincts to punish and to, you know, inflict discipline onto those who didn't want to follow the Rome's way. So there would be historians who would argue that Rome and then Carthage and Hippo's instincts infected the church. And that's why they took on this eternal conscious torment sort of approach. More specifically, uh, you have a bishop, the 
one of the first bishops of Milan, Milan, Italy, a guy named Ambrose. And Ambrose was somebody who believed in apocatastasis. He believed in universal reconciliation or universalism. And Ambrose was this huge influence on a guy named Augustine or Augustine. People say it both ways. And St. Augustine, it's hard to overstate the importance of Augustine. He is one of the most important theologians in church history, particularly Western church history. So the Roman Catholic Church and even into Protestantism and Calvinism and all of that. And so Ambrose mentored Augustine when Augustine came to know Jesus. Augustine originally held to agatastasis, to universal reconciliation. And then Augustine, much of his career is defined by his fight against this heresy called Pelagianism. Again, we don't have the time, full time to get into what a Pelagianism is. And most of what we know about Pelagianism is a reconstruction based off of what Augustine said about it. Augustine, of course, is not a you know, perfectly valid witness because he spent his life fighting Pelagianism. But Pelagianism basically got at the idea that humans were inherently good, had not fallen at the fall and were able to reconcile with God and whatever God's actions were upon the cross were were not a form of atonement or anything. Okay, and that's a really rough outline about Pelagianism. So Augustine spends his career fighting against Pelagianism. And Augustine was under the misconception, and this is stuff that you can trace through the literature. Augustine was under the misconception that Pelagianism came from an older dude named Origen, okay? O-R-I-G-E-N, origin. So Augustine is fighting Pelagianism. He thinks Pelagianism comes from origin. Origin is most famous for being the biggest proponent and arguer for Christian universalism. Okay, this is tracking so far. So Augustine associates Pelagianism, which really doesn't have a lot to do with universalism, with origin, who is a huge proponent of universalism. So Augustine sort of has this, in logic and critical thinking, you would call this a genetic fallacy. Well, if Origen believed in universalism, and Origen is the reason that we have these stupid Pelagianists, then I have to disagree with universalism too. That's sort of Augustine's, Augustine's train of thought. So Augustine not only spends his career fighting against the Pelagianists, but he also spends part of his career fighting against universalists. Augustine didn't know Greek or he, he knew very little. He knew Latin. He was Italian, he, or he was North African, excuse me, but he was trained in Italian schools, Roman schools. And he is one of the reasons where we get this big misunderstanding around the, the word Ionios, the Greek word Ionios. Ionios gets translated into the Latin Eternus, eternal. And so Augustine, in much of his biblical thinking, says like, well, the Bible says that hell is eternal. Jesus says that this fire is eternal. Augustine doesn't know Greek. He doesn't understand the difference about Ionios being a measurement of quality, not quantity. And so he perpetuates this idea of eternal hell and hellfire. Interestingly, Augustine in his writings even refers to the fact that very many or a majority of Christians at the time were universalists. And that's one of the key pieces of evidence, historical evidence that we have is from Augustine's pen that most Christians, when Augustine was living in the 350s to 430s CE, were universalists. But Augustine's like, 
that's dumb because it's associated with origin, who's associated with Pelagianism, and I'm going to spend my career pushing back against this. Augustine becomes hugely influential. He writes, I mean, a bookshelf full of works and becomes sort of the, the father of scholastic theology. And most writers forward from the 500s and on are going to refer back to Augustine. And because Augustine did write some good things, like I don't want to throw Augustine into the bus completely. He's not, he's not a dumb guy. But with that came all the stuff along with, with eternal hell, all of that. So as Rome became more and more prominent, as the church sort of consolidated into the Roman Catholic Church, and as Augustine's work became sort of the de facto thing that you quote when you want to quote good theology, eternal hell became the majority view. All right. Antonio, does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Thank you. Cheers. Did it. Now, I want to add one wrinkle is that it became the eternal view in the Western church. So you may be familiar with the, the idea of the Orthodox church or the Eastern Orthodox church. And they, I mean, there's kind of a bunch of ways that you can track it, but over time split off from the Roman Catholic Church. So Roman Catholic Church became associated with Rome and the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, whereas the Orthodox or the Eastern Orthodox Church became associated with Constantinople, what will eventually become known as the Ottoman Empire, all of that. And they had very different approaches to their theology. They talked about sin and depravity and human nature in very different ways. And they talked about heaven and hell in very different ways. So there's this great quote from the Orthodox Church in America, but they do a good summary of saying, the final coming of Christ will be the judgment of all men. His very presence will be the judgment. Now, men can live without the love of Christ in their lives, and they can exist as if there were no God. At the end of the ages, this will no longer be possible. All men will have to behold the face of him for who, who is for us our salvation who came down from heaven. For those who love the Lord, his presence will be infinite joy, paradise, and eternal life. And for those who hate the Lord, the same will be experienced as infinite joy torture, hell, and eternal death. The reality for both the saved and the damned will be exactly the same when Christ comes in glory. According to the saints, the fire that will consume sinners at the king, coming of the kingdom of God is the same fire that will shine with the splendor in the saints. It is the fire of God's love. This is the church's spiritual teaching that God does not punish man by material fire or physical torment. God simply reveals himself in a glorious way that no one can fail to behold God's glory. And it's the splendor of God's glory and love that is the scourge of those who reject its radiant power and light. So that's sort of an Eastern way of thinking about hell of, yeah, there's no separate place called hell. Some separate, you know, dungeons of torture is rather simply being in the presence of God. Some people will experience as, as, as that. And then throughout the Eastern Orthodox tradition, there were just a bunch of opinions. I'm like, well, could somebody change their mind? Some said yes, some said no. But all that to say that the majority view of eternal conscious torment is the majority view in the Western context. God started with Augustine or propagated by Augustine, passes on through the Protestant Reformation, and it becomes sort of this Catholic Protestant thing. Whereas the Eastern Orthodox Church is having very different conversations with a lot more possibilities than sort of the, the eternal conscious torment that the Western church got locked into. Clear questions so far? Yeah, Chris. 
I was just I was just trying to make a connection to like have you I'm sure you've read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds a lot like the what you just described in the sense that but it's more so about like community and like isolation and that sort of thing and like folks basically like isolating themselves and not being hell and yeah and the more that they do it the the, the further they get from like a point a place of acceptance of Jesus and, and reconciliation and that sort of thing. So it's interesting to hear you talk about it because I've, I've just been thinking about that book a lot during this. And, and that's like the closest description I've heard from like a school of theology that's connected to like what C.S. Lewis was saying. I don't know if you agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I 100% agree. Yeah, C.S. Lewis was doing, I mean, if C.S. Lewis were writing today, he would get canceled on Twitter so fast by evangelicals because... He offered these sort of different possibilities of understanding the afterlife. If you ever read The Great Divorce, it has nothing to do with marriage and divorce. If you've seen it like a bookshelf and thought, oh, this is a marriage book. No, no, no. Uh, The Great Divorce refers to the separation between heaven and hell, this divide. And it's this delightful little extended parable about somebody who is living in this hell of basically everyone's spread further and further and further out. Napoleon shows up and he's got the largest, furthest out of state of anybody. And then heaven hilariously is offering bus tours there where the residents of hell can occasionally go up on a bus tour and experience it. And for some, they experience the more solid, more real heart of heaven as, as awful. The, the, their feet touch the solid blades of grass and they experience it as, as like shards of glass cutting their feet. Whereas some people seem to have some level of hope or possibility where they experience it as good. So it's a, it's, it's a short read. It's just, you know, it's from the 1940s. So you got to get over the language a little bit, but yeah, fun little parable. And I, I think you're right, Chris. I think Lewis did offer some views on the afterlife that would, you know, sort of fall on deaf ears today, but yeah, it's good stuff. All right, let's get into just a couple texts. Second Thessalonians chapter one. And our friend Stephen from the West Coast brought this up on week one. So Stephen, if you're listening to the podcast, this is for you. So it says this, for it is only right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Those people will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. So I've got that highlighted here. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified among his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. All right, so, you know, we've got some some things that you might underline or highlight along, you know, these questions of dealing out retribution, those who pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of God. So, yeah, sounds sounds not great. Sounds like something you wouldn't want to be a part of. And does this undo anything that we've talked about? So, first thing to know about 2 Thessalonians is that it, the authorship of it is debated. Okay? So, there's a there's a series of of Pauline epistles, Paul's letters that scholars debate whether or not Paul actually wrote them. And there's really smart people that I I respect and I understand who say like, no, these are these were students of Paul or disciples of Paul or fans of Paul. 
were sort of writing, you know, not quite fan fiction, but it was a common practice in the centuries before and after Jesus to write something with a pseudonym, pretending to have someone else's name, but a pseudonym of somebody famous. And this was not seen as like sleazy plagiarism. Plagiarism. It was not seen as plagiarism. Thank you. It was seen as a form of respect or whatever. And that's fine. The fact of the matter is these sorts of debates get tossed around over the decades and there are trends and some people think it was written by Paul. Some people think it wasn't. It kind of depends on what decade of literature you're reading about this. So you could say this wasn't Paul. This was somebody else. And quite frankly, they didn't know what they were talking about. So we don't really have to listen to it. You could say that. I usually try not to take that path when I do my biblical studies. I read with the assumption that the ancient church, the historical church, has assumed that this was Paul, has put it in the canon or or our 66 books of scripture for a reason. So we should wrestle with it as it is before us. So assuming that it is Paul, you still have to put a verse like this in the context of everything else Paul has said. If it is Paul, it would probably be late Paul, Paul pretty soon before his death. And Paul still said all the other things that he said, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, all will be made alive in Christ. All the things that we talked about in weeks previous. So you still got to square that circle somehow. If Paul said all of these pretty universalistic things, how do you square that with this passage here? So. First thing that we got to wrestle with, let me, let me see if anything I've said in the past two weeks has sunk in. The phrase, these people will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. What do we need to wrestle with in that verse? What's the nature of eternal in, in that context? And what kind of destruction are we talking about? Precisely, precisely. So again, we've got the word ionios, which historically in English translations and, you know, uh, you know, even in Latin and stuff like that has been translated as eternal, meaning a infinite length of time. Okay. What if we take seriously the, the Greek scholars who say, no, we shouldn't translate ionios that way. So then you end up with a translation that says something like otherworldly destruction or the destruction of the age. So not a length of time, but a quality. And then we also have to wrestle with the word destruction. What is the nature of this destruction? And if you track that word in the New Testament, destruction is not the same as annihilation or the end of somebody. So for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is a good example of this. So this is the story of there being sexual immorality in the Corinthian church. And somebody is sleeping with their father's wife. My understanding of this is that this is a non-consensual relationship. So rape, sexual abuse of some sort with a stepmother. Notice that Paul is rebuking specifically the man and disciplining the man and not the woman. And Paul basically says, like, you need to kick this person out of church. Paul says, I have decided to turn such a person over to Satan for the destruction, so there's that word, of his body, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So we get this notion in Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 that somebody's body can be destroyed for their salvation. Somebody's body can be destroyed so that their spirit can be saved on the day of the Lord, the return of God. So right there, we can see in our passage that we're wrestling with right now, 2 Thessalonians 1, these people will pay the penalty of the Ionios destruction, the destruction or ruin of the age when Jesus returns. So then we're just into some, okay, what kind of assumptions are we going to make? 
Are we going to assume the eternal hell, eternal conscious torment sort of understanding? Or is it something that is still serious? And like, I don't want to understate that. It's still a serious thing to contend with, that if somebody has, in Paul's word, afflicted the church, caused pain and suffering, when Jesus returns, they will pay the penalty of ruin or destruction, otherworldly destruction of the age. Still something really bad to contend with as a person. But that doesn't have to equal, they will suffer for an infinite length of time. Okay? Is this making any sort of sense? The other thing I'll add here, too, is that if you read the prophets in, in the Hebrew Bible, particularly if you read them at a sprint, so as opposed to the you know, paragraph reverse at a time approach to how Bible reading can often be, but if you just read through all of Isaiah, which you could do in like a long afternoon, or all of Ezekiel, or all, you know, or the minor prophets, which is just a set of 12, sometimes it's called the book of 12, if you just read them at a sprint, you'll notice this pattern of you will be utterly destroyed and then I will restore you, okay? That sort of language, I believe, is happening in in Paul's mind and even Jesus's mind all the time, where modern hearers or readers of scripture hear utter destruction, eternal destruction, destruction of the age. And because of our theological context, we insert that, we pigeonhole that into hell language, which is infinite, eternal, no one can escape. Whereas the Old Testament prophets, the Hebrew prophets, often talked about destruction, even in the Hebrew would be the word olam, so forever or long-lasting destruction, which then is immediately followed up by restoration, recovery, being put back into God's presence or God's presence returning. I actually, I'm just making this connection right now, and as I'm reading this, is people will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So this could be, again, I'm thinking on my feet. This is, could be an allusion to Ezekiel. So the first 10 chapters, 12 chapters of Ezekiel deal with the Shekinah glory, the presence of God leaving the temple. And there's this kind of dramatic vision in Ezekiel of God's presence leaving the temple and flying away to the mountains. And then you get sort of spelled out that as God's presence leaves, then Babylon comes in and destroys Jerusalem. So these two things are sort of two sides of the same coin. On the spiritual side, the invisible side, God's presence leaves the temple. On the physical side, Babylon comes and, and destroys the temple in, in Jerusalem. And But then the conclusion of Ezekiel is the return of the presence of God to the temple. The temple rebuilt in this, this river and trees of healing it's, and very much copied and pasted by the author of Revelation into that conclusion. So even though 2 Thessalonians 1 says, pay the penalty of Ionios destruction, destruction or ruin of the age, away from the presence of its power, in the Hebrew mindset, that does not equal forever and ever and ever on it. Am I making any sort of convincing case here? Can, can I ask a question? Yeah. It's really like, it's not fully formed at all, but I'm just thinking about like, if this is Paul and his experience as one who persecuted the church, I'm trying to remember like what his conversion was like. And if, because I'm trying to remember, it, it, it was fairly dramatic, right? And like yeah. intense and almost like in a way this, this could be like a, a larger description of his own personal experience of conversion as one mm-hmm. who persecuted the church too. Like that, again, I don't know. That's, that's, that's dissertation level thinking there, Chris. That's good stuff. Paul was figuratively destroyed and broken down, right, Anthony? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So Paul, Paul, now our Galatians class is talking a lot about Paul's conversion and, and all of that. So yeah, Paul does have this dramatic re- revelation, parousia, revealing of Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's struck blind. He makes his way to somebody's house. He's restored. He does preach for a little bit, but then the thing that people forget about Paul is then he vanishes for 14 years. He doesn't do much. And part of what he does is he goes on pilgrimage to Arabia, which is where Mount Sinai is. And 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 probably is doing some intense studying and rethinking of his entire worldview. So yeah, I think there's some connections to be made there, Chris. I think that's really, I think that's really smart. Cool. Yeah, thanks. I mean, what we're doing right now, we're doing the thing that biblical scholars do, is that you find those connections of like, oh, what if Second Thessalonians 1 is touching on the, the weaving of God's presence in Ezekiel? What if it has something to do with Paul's conversion? Like that, that, that is the fun stuff to me. That is... You know, and sometimes it looks a little bit like the uh, the always sunny meme of like, you know, the chart with all the string and like the conspiracy theories. Sometimes it looks a little bit like that. And then sometimes you find the thing that actually like, oh, no, I have some good evidence. Final, so final thing on this, David Bentley Hart, New Testament scholar of the Eastern Orthodox tradition, he translates that verse nine as these people will pay the just reparation of ruin in the age. Okay, so David Bentley Hart, he's a bit of a wordy fellow, but he, I think he's getting at some of the intent here of, yes, they will pay the penalty, the just reparation of what they did, of ruin in the age. And this is one of the serious things to contend with, with a a Christ-centered universalism, a universalistic understanding of of the world to come. It is not the same as saying you get away with everything. It still has to contend with justice and reparation. That if you have inflicted harm on people, society, creation, yes, I I affirm the forgiveness that God offers. I affirm the justification offered by the atonement. I affirm those things. And I affirm the need for justice and reparation. And what I think universalistic reconciliation offers us is a way of actually making sure that's carried through rather than a worldview that says, hey, you inflicted harm on people. So now you're going to go suffer for all eternity. What what does that actually do for those who suffered harm? That's That's just sort of naked vengeance. And it doesn't repair anything. Whereas apocatastasis, the restoration of all things, says no. Even Hitler, in origins, say origins point of view, even Satan will come to recognize the error of their ways and out of their own desire wish to be part of the mission to make all things well. Again, to quote Tolkien, since I'm in a mood to make everything sad untrue. And to me, it is a much more gorgeous vision of the world to come to say, instead of saying, you know, God ultimately loses some people and ultimately these people will never come to understand the harm that they cause. I'd rather believe in a vision that says, no, everyone will come to recognize their mistakes, the error of their ways, and have an honest desire to be part of making everything sad become untrue. Revelation. Revelation. Again, 
nowhere near enough time to cover everything there is to say about Revelation. That would be a different class. I think, again, it was Antonio, Antonio, you brought up the question of the millennium. So to catch you up in Revelation towards the end, but not the very end, the sort of main antagonist enemies in the book, the, let's see, you have the dragon and the beast and the beast prophet. The, the beast and the beast prophet are thrown into the lake of fire and Jesus is set up to reign for a thousand years and his saints, Jesus's saints reign with him. And then the beast or the dragon, I think it's the beast, gets unleashed for one little bit of period of time at the end of this millennium. And people, even after living with Jesus's reign for a thousand years, ma- manage to fall to the deception of the beast. And then there's one final battle where Jesus is finally victorious and all of the bad guys are put into the lake of fire. And so Antonio brought up the question of like, if Jesus reigns years, and then people still manage to rebel, how likely is it that everyone's going to eventually turn to Jesus and stay there? Is that, is that a good summary of your question? Because I think it feels like, and maybe this is like a not accurate uh, assumption that part of Christian universalism is contingent upon people not fully seeing God as God is. Yep. There's like scales and things. But in this scenario, there's really a theocracy with King Jesus in the flesh. And people are like, nah, we good. Yeah, we don't do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, then it says, yeah, even after the, in Catholic thought, this is called the beatific vision, the seeing God as God truly is. Then, and they still manage to fall. Then, yeah, then that whole argument in universalism doesn't really work. All right, so this is Revelation 20. So a couple things to contend with here. One, again, we don't have time to get into it all, but there's so many views on Revelation. What's it about? What's it doing? What's its purpose? Is it about the future? So it's it's a roadmap for some age to come. Is it about the first century, second century church? John of Patmos and his revelation, and he's explaining what's happening with the Roman Empire. Is it some mix of the two that it's about the Roman Empire, but also has resonances into the future? These views all have different names that you can look up. You could go to your favorite bookseller and look up a book called Four Views on the Book Revelation. So lots of things to contend with there. Specifically about the millennium, you there is a view called amillennialism. So the letter A, millennialism. And the A, you know, typically if you throw A in front of a word, it means not or un, which is somewhat of a misnomer. Amillennialism is making the claim that the millennium is happening right now, aka the church age. So if you know in Revelation 20 where this millennium happens, verse 4 says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus or the martyrs. They hadn't worshipped the beast or its image. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And this is the first resurrection. This is different than what happens in Revelation 21, which is, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. I saw the holy city Jerusalem coming down like a bride beautifully prepared for her husband. And then I saw, you know, basically the city has no, there's no sun or moon because God is the light of the city. So different eras here. There's one where the martyrs or those who did not bow to the beast, the Roman Empire, they are the ones reigning. And then you get new heavens, new earth, and it's God, God's self reigning. And Amillism makes the claim that the thousand years is a symbolic number. And it has to do with this, you know, era after the resurrection of Jesus, where 
This would be what Second Corinthians five. If anyone is a new creation in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. So we are currently in this new era, waiting for the eventual culmination of it when the new heavens and the new earth are made. And I, this is where I would fall as an amillennialist. John chapter twelve, John sixteen. I'll throw this in some notes that I'll give you guys. Satan is shown to be already defeated and bound. Jesus in the book of John refers to his crucifixion as the moment in which Satan is defeated. Colossians chapter 3 says that our lives are hidden in Christ with God and that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. So this notion that Christians are already reigning with Christ. Therefore, what Revelation is describing is a sort of current reality, one of hope that eventually the Roman Empire will fall and not be victorious over Christians, and one of current reality that we already do reign with Christ, and we have to contend with the the now and the not yet of Christ is victorious, death has been defeated, and the enemy has not left, not yet left the field, and they're fighting dirty because of it. So that's one thing to contend with. The other thing to contend with is this is, let's see, I gotta read my notes to understand what I said here. Oh yeah, this is not about a future where supposedly perfect or perfected people fail or fall, but rather a description that happens towards the end of time, but not the actual end of time. So again, it's pre-new heavens, new earth. So they have, they know something about the reign of Christ, but they have not yet had the beatific vision, the actual seeing God, God's self in perfection. So that would be the couple things I would contend with with Revelation. Did we, two weeks ago, did we actually get into like Lake of Fire and all that sort of stuff? All right. Again, I'll attempt to be brief. So Revelation offers us two alternating and contrasting images that no doubt are messy, but both are happening at the same time. So the Lake of Fire, you see beasts and kings of the earth and their armies assemble against God, and then they're thrown alive into the Lake of Fire, which burns with brimstone. Revelation 20 says the devil who deceived everyone was thrown into the Lake of Fire, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night, depends on your translation, forever and ever, or for ages and ages. At the end of Revelation 20, the dead are resurrected, placed before the great throne. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And anyone whose name isn't found in the school of life is thrown into the lake of fire. So like, you know, pretty serious language here. Then you get this open invitation language. Very next verse. So after everybody's thrown into the lake of fire, fiery sea. Very next verse, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So this, remember, chapter breaks don't exist in, in the original original scriptures. So lake of fire, sea of fiery, fiery sea, everyone's thrown in, then new heaven and new earth, and there is no sea, which I always read as a kid as like, well, that sucks. I like fishing. I did like fishing as a teenager. And I, you know, I like boats, whatever. What, what the heck? So a couple things. One, Hebrew mindset, the sea is the place where evil resides and originates. You see this lots in like Job and the Psalms, where the sea monsters, sea creatures, evil, they come from the sea. And the Israelites were not a seafaring people. So lots of mythology and legend around the sea. So in Revelation 21, where there is no sea, then this, this is a way of saying 
the source of evil has been done away with. Two, I don't think it's an accident. And again, remember, there's no chapter markers, there's no verse markers to go from they're thrown into the fiery lake to new heavens, new earth, there is no sea. I don't think it is an accident that these two things are placed next to each other. You keep reading and it says God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning or crying or pain for it anymore for the former things have passed away. And again, you've got to choose your choose your priors, choose your assumptions. Is that just for the people who weren't thrown into the fiery lake? Or is that a more broad statement for everyone? Yes, there was pain, mourning, crying for those in the fiery lake, but now there's not anymore. What's your assumption? Then the other thing to contend with in Revelation 21, it says that the nations are going to walk by its light, the light of God's presence. And this new city, New Jerusalem, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Kings of the earth, if you're reading Revelation again, reading it at a sprint, that phrase specifically should ring a bell because in Revelation 19, the kings of the earth are the ones who marched against God and were thrown into the fiery lake. Well, now in Revelation 21, the kings of the earth are the ones who are coming into the new Jerusalem and bringing glory into it. Again, what are your assumptions? Well, that's just the good kings of the earth. The bad kings of the earth are still in the fiery lake, which there's a new heavens and new earth. So what fiery lake are you talking about? Verse 25 Revelation 21, 25, and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night. They will bring their glory and the honor of the nations into it. So you get this really universalistic language here. Its gates will never be shut. On this, each side of the river is the tree of life, which produces 12 crops of fruit bearing fruit each month. And the tree's leaves are for the healing of the nations, which is this cool, just beautiful image of you know, my preferred way of understanding sins and not as a moralistic or judicial problem, but rather a disease to be healed from. And chapter 22, verses 14 and 15, favored are those who wash the robes that they may have the right of access to the tree of life and may enter the city by its gates. Outside, are the dogs and drug users and spellcasters and those who commit sexual immorality, murderers and idolaters and all who have practiced deception. So there is still this concept of inside and outside gates that will never be shut. People can come in, people are outside, but the possibility of favorite are those who wash their robes so that they can have the right of access. So this image of, yeah, there are still people who are like, nope, not interested, but they may come in whenever they want to. Let's pause there, get some revelation questions. In. I think for me, like growing up in like a, like a mainline sort of Pentecostal church and reading the Left Behind series as a child, I feel like my view of revelation is like super tainted by like, just this like, I don't know, fan fiction that has all these like care. It has a lot. So I really appreciate this. And then I think in terms of sort of the Lake of Fire, being like a temporary place in Revelation that gets sort of extinguished, I guess, for me to say a common sense question, it is interesting because like, you know, I'm like a civil rights lawyer, so I love like restorative justice. And so I think there's like an impulse towards this idea that I really appreciate. I do think it does become interesting to think about even like rehabilitation and like the punitive aspects of that. Like, you know, if the world exists without end, right? Even if you spend like 2 billion years in the lake of fire like compared to like eternity that's like not actually like a punishment so yeah that's just like some questions that's thoughts yeah 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 like in order to do any of this seriously you can't 
act like there is just one super clean answer. And you know, my my bent is anyone who says something like, well, the Bible clearly says that's code to me of I haven't thought about this much. So that that's something to wrestle with. And any of this of like, yes, I have my conclusions, I have my arguments. And I also know that like, yeah, there's there's other things to contend with. Skylar, are you unmuted? Oh, I was just gonna say absolutely. And it just reminds me I grew up in you know fairly conservative trust and I remember I just happened to go to Jesuit high school, which was awesome, but it was kind of more like it's a good school as opposed to we're Catholic because we weren't. And I remember in, in scripture class, you know, the first time I heard Revelation wasn't just about an like an 80s made for TV movie about rapture anxiety. It was like it was like the beginning of unraveling of starting to think for myself. And it, it made for some awkward dinner table conversations, but I, I think ultimately I was better for it. So. So I keep thinking about something that might be a connection about how the lake of fire and revelation is called like the second death often. Yeah. And I was thinking, I just it, it, I thought of it when you were reading and it was talking about how there's no more death and thinking about that, that might be an interesting thought because like the first death, if you know, if heaven is real, like your first death, first death is like an experience that we go through. It's not final. And then the second death, the lake of fire kind of second death experience then could be, you know, similarly an, a temporary experience that when the when death is no more, therefore the second death no longer exists. I don't know. It's just a thought. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're on the right track. And you, yeah, no word in the book of Revelation is wasted. Like it is an intricately put together, layered piece of literature. And you, you have to wrestle with, okay, you just said second death and that death is no more. What do you do with that? Mm-hmm. I feel like from a big picture, you know, when we started the class, I think I mentioned how I was really pleasantly wrestling with like, let's say Native Americans who worship one great spirit and are tuned with nature and this thought about comparative religion and you know are are people calling are we all focusing on one god with a different name and i know that would make conservative folks but as i think about that i feel like this universalism class not only been great in general but it's informed my thinking about that and i'm still early in it but i i've got to say i feel like christ-centered universalism doesn't scoot us further from the idea of a major overlap. I'm not necessarily suggesting every religion is just ultimately the same, but a lot more overlap than maybe conservative thinking is comfortable with. And yeah. I feel like it, it it shoves me up against those thoughts more in a good way. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to respond to Skylar's comment really quick because I have a little anecdote. And it's really interesting. So I was like in college and sort of before the table, I was really involved in like charismatic churches. And what's interesting for like Christians who like don't believe in like spiritual gifts and that type of mysticism, one of the criticisms of it was that when charismatic people would like respond to God's presence through like shaking or laughing or whatever they would experience, it was similar to like Hinduism and some of those like rituals. And so it was like actually like levied as like heresy, like, oh, like if you guys do the same thing the Hindus are doing when they're experiencing like presence, like this must be of the devil. So it's interesting what you're saying, because I think even on that side, this Christian spectrum, which is like deeply conservative in many ways. They're doing things that align with like Eastern religions in surprising ways. And like, what a what a posture to take. What if the Hindus are experiencing the same divine presence we are? Bingo. What if? Yep. Surely God can't be that big. Just doesn't right, exactly. Like that's the attitude. What alternative is actually that like both those Christians and Hindus are experiencing the devil. 
It's like there's a universality there just on the negative side. So I'm going to try to summarize here a quote from David Bentley Hart. The consensus is that the New Testament contains, for the most part, two kinds of language about the last judgment. One seems to show final destruction of the wicked right at the threshold of restored creation in the age to come. So you do have that kind of language. Two, another that seems to clearly promise universal salvation. And the question is, which one of these two kinds of language can better explain the other? Okay, The first, after all, if the destruction of the sinful is understood as total annihilation, would basically make the number two seem like just empty hyperbole, right? But if you take two more seriously, it could conceivably explain one in terms of a harsh purification that does destroy the sinful self, but only for the sake of the resurrection of the redeemed person. So I'm going to try to summarize. What Hart is saying is if you take category number two, this universalistic language in the New Testament and the Hebrew Bible too, you take that as the more serious thing to contend with, then that would conceivably explain that all of the language that we do have, and we do have it in the Bible about destruction, is simply a form of harsh purification that then leaves a, a restored person able to experience the glories of new creation. So in, in my understanding, I think you know we will all pass away and die. And we will all need to experience some level of purification or renewal or sanctification, choose your word, in order to be able to experience new creation as something good. And First you know, John says, when we see him, we shall be like him. I think that's true of Christians. I think that's true of non-Christians. I also believe that Christians, some most, some amount of Christians are currently experiencing the Holy Spirit and God in a particular way that other people don't have access to right now. So that's sort of the particular claim or anti-universalist claim that I'm making. But I also do believe that Colossians 1 is accurate. In God, we live and move and have our being. What Paul says in his his sermon on Mars Hill, that uh, we're all children of the divine and that every person on earth has access to God's presence and and is able to participate in the divine life in some way. So that upon death, we will be confronted with the goodness and glory of God. And we can either submit ourselves to that healing process, that like a good doctor, God will heal us from the corrosive effects of sin and evil and death, or God grants us the freedom to say no to that process. But eventually, those who do rebel or say no to it will exhaust themselves and eventually realize what goodness is and submit themselves to it. I believe that our ultimate hope is in physical resurrection, a new heavens and a new earth, that God proclaims physical creation as good and is not ultimately going to destroy it, but to restore it. And that all shall, the God will be ultimately victorious, that all shall come to know the goodness and beauty of God. A couple of theological arguments. One, I believe that hell does not take God seriously enough. Again, a, a David Bentley Hart quote, the belief that God of infinite intellect, justice, love, and power would condemn rational beings to a state of endless suffering or would allow them to condemn themselves on account of their own delusion, pain, and anger is worse than merely scandalous. It may be the single most horrid notion 
the religious imagination has ever entertained and the most irrational and spiritual corrosive picture of existence possible. David Bentley Hart's a little harsh, but it's taking seriously the words of Jesus. Love your enemies. Be perfect or total in your love as your father is perfect. Your heavenly father is perfect. Matthew chapter five. If God is revealed to be the kind of God who loves his enemies, then that does some serious damage against the doctrine of eternal hell. David Bentley Hart continues, the unsolvable contradiction at the very core of the now majority dominant understanding of the Christian confession is that the faith commands us to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and our neighbors as ourselves, and also telling us to believe in the reality of an eternal hell. We can't possibly do both of these things at the same time. If we are to to love our neighbors as ourselves, if we are to love our enemies, how can we then also believe that some people will be condemned to suffer for eternity and we're supposed to be okay with that? Which gets into kind of theological argument number two. Hell doesn't take heaven seriously enough. So philosopher William James has this sort of mind experiment. Imagine a hypothesis offered to us in which a world of millions would be kept permanently happy on the simple condition that a certain lost soul on the far off edge of things should lead a life of lonely torture. What except a skeptical and independent sort of emotion can it be, which would make us immediately feel, even though an impulse might arise within us to clutch at that happiness so often, how hideous a thing would be its enjoyment when deliberately accepted as the fruit of such a bargain. So put in non-philosophical speak. You all can be eternally happy forever, but one just one person has to suffer endlessly in order for everyone else to be happy. And that's sort of the, the mind experiment. So if, if heaven is meant to be this place where there's no sorrow, no crying, no suffering, no mourning, how is that possible if we are to be conscious of the fact that there is some number of people out there eternally suffering, even if it's of their own? choice. Some philosophers, like modern philosophers, would argue that God would remove the memory of those people from our minds. So, you know, theoretically, these are going to be somebody's loved ones. And so God, in order to relieve us of that suffering and mourning of knowing that some people are in hell, including our loved ones, would remove memory of them from our minds, which is sort of a way of saying God will lobotomize us in order to make us infinitely happy, which I don't know how to understand that anything other than deception. So, Hell doesn't take God seriously enough. Hell doesn't take heaven seriously enough. And hell does not take Jesus's atoning work seriously enough. So one of the arguments for hell is this idea that, you know, an infinite, a sin against an infinite God deserves an infinite punishment. But in that case, what then did the cross and the atonement accomplish? If the cross and the atonement actually did what it was supposed to do, which was to care for the justice of God to make sure that any sort of slight against an infinite divine being was taken care of. Even if someone were to say, no, I'm not interested in that atonement, they wouldn't still deserve infinite punishment. Or that would be a way of saying that, well, the cross actually wasn't all that effective. So basically, this would be a form of an argument for annihilationism. Fine, you don't want to accept Jesus, you don't want to accept the atonement, no one's going to force you or make you, but then you will just cease to exist. Otherwise, God would have to consciously keep you eternally existent in order to keep you punished and tortured. And that to me is basically saying that the atonement doesn't apply to some people, which I mean, geez, what scriptures are we going to decide to ignore in order to keep infinite health? So all that to say, I think we can make pretty good arguments against eternal hell. I think we can make them from scripture. 
I think we can make them from theology and philosophy. And I think it offers us a more beautiful and more accurate image of the world to come and should inspire in us not apathy, but rather encouragement to invite people to know this kind of God, a God who will not give up on anyone, a God who will never abandon someone to suffer forever, even due to their own delusion or pain or anger, but will always keep pursuing after people. I think that's a God worth inviting people to know. So thank you all for being excellent students and conversation partners.